1: Boop, 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 boop. Yeah. So many,
0: so many, so many damn books. So welcome to so many damn books. Hi, I'm Drew. I'm Christopher.
1: Uh, and before we get to our conversation about a particular book today, we have a fun announcement, a little teaser or something coming up later this episode.
0: Yeah, we have Emily St. John Mendel. John Mendel. We'll find out how to pronounce her last name correctly because she is on this episode. Uh, she wonderfully agreed to talk to us about her Tournament of Books nomination. She's she's Her Book Station 11 is one of the 16 books this, this time on the Morning News Tournament of Books. Yep,
1: it was our first book uh, for this podcast here. As
0: you know, because you're dedicated listeners Indeed. and you love everything that we do. Uh, so we're excited
1: to talk to her just yeah on bit. the
0: phone and and find out about her life as a superstar literary author. Well, let's just jump right in audiobooks that's what we're talking about and I think as a podcast listener, you listener are probably I think the people who listen to podcasts and the people who listen to audiobooks that's a that's quite a Venn diagram. There's more people that listen to both. And neither
1: I am on one of the sides of that Venn diagram.
0: you're not an audiobook person, why
1: I am not um i it's twofold, and I think both of the things uh come into the audiobook that we're going to talk about later, okay, in particular, one of them is speed. I like reading at whatever speed the book is taking me in right and I tend to be a very fast reader sure um. That's
0: and a huge surprise for all of our listeners.
1: <laughs> and often an audio, I'm like, okay, you are, you're taking your time. I need, you know, and yeah, you can speed it up, which is a thing, but sometimes it gets clippy and weird.
0: Yeah. Um, and it, and, and you start to not understand the words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I understand. I, I think that that is the, that is my problem with audiobooks as someone who enjoys them. Mm. Um, is, is that same thing. And even the other way too, where sometimes I would like to go back and reread something or even flip back Mm -hmm. like 30 pages before and remind myself of like a character or something. And there's no, I mean, there is the back 30 seconds or like you can put bookmarks, but I, I usually have my iPod in my back pocket Mm -hmm. and I don't know, I, (laughs) uh, I obviously mean iPhone, but back when I had, <laughs> back when an, I had an iPod, I downloaded a uh, Lord of the Rings, like a full cl- cast recording of Lord oh, of the cool. Rings. Um, there was like 40 characters yeah. and, and it's scored and they, all the songs are sung and everything. And, um, I didn't know my iPod was on shuffle
2: <laughs> and I was
0: just like, well, Lord of the Rings make no sense. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why people like that book. But- <laughs> And that was my only time trying to read Lord of the Rings, actually, so... Really? Yeah, I never read it. Wow. Is it any good?
1: The second reason that I don't like audiobooks... Sure. um, Tends to be... I... It's a performance-based thing. That's fair. Um, I... Grew up as an actor and I'm still very much involved in performance of all kinds of ways. And so, some of those like full cast recordings, the BBC just did a full cast recording of Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett's Good Omens, mm-hmm. which I mean, I've read that book, but that audiobook slash almost more of a radio play is awesome. It's like it's fully produced, everybody has voices, and there's a more of a performative sense to it. Right. So, often with audiobooks, it's like I've said this to you before and you've given me a, an eyebrow about it. there's like audiobook voice mm. and it's you know it's it's stately and it's measured and the emotion that sometimes is on the page they don't go all the way with it
0: i I understand I understand that criticism, but just don't choose that audiobook because they're not all like that
1: right and i've I've certainly listened to some that aren't like that um, but that tends to be the thing that you know, it.
0: I guess it's that same thing of of being forced to read Great Expectations before I was ready. Mm-hmm. Of just like that wasn't the book for me, and like being and in the same way that you you were forced to listen to this thing, yeah. to, And and it soured you on the idea of them. So yeah, I think that there is something about that in reading, or 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 watching movies or any sort of um, culture that you build these walls. And in some ways, you're like, that's my taste. Um, but in other ways, it's more like, yeah, I had this bad experience. It's, you know, it's like people who don't want to name their kid, you know, Nancy, because they knew a bad Nancy growing up. Right. Like that, that has no... Can I start calling you Nancy, Drew? Oh, oh man. Boom. <laughs> I won't do that. <laughs> Not often. Uh, yeah, actually, recently... Um, Fast Company published this article uh, that the title was Your Brain on Audiobooks, Distracted, Forgetful, and Bored, Uh, which was clickbait for sure because I, (laughs) as an audiobook enjoyer, uh, I clicked (laughs) on it. (laughs) I'm I'm all ready to make an account comment. (laughs) But I didn't even have to because... It was the silliest article. They based their finding on 235 people uh, listening to a section of Bill Bryson's uh, A Short History of Nearly Everything. Mm. And then they read it and they listened to it and they measured like brain activity. First of all, I love Bill Bryson. However, (laughs) listening to that book, which is actually something that I have done, yeah like your mind wanders because it's just an it's just a very well told conversational uh, yeah. encyclopedia right and so yeah you know I, I imagine if you're in a room in a blank space you know listening to this, it's not the best
1: that's there's something interesting about the the difference between Reading a thing and listening to it because it does it does force you to interact in a different way.
0: Absolutely. I feel like it'd be a very different study if you had like a Neil Gaiman short story, like the one that they released on uh, Audible for free a couple months ago. Uh, Click, clack the rattle bag, which was like a kind of terrifying short story of his that he read. I feel like the scientists who I'm going to put air quotes around that, <laughs> who put that together, uh, were basically like, I hate audiobooks. How do we, how do we prove it was like almost confirmation bias sort of study. Right. And, um, anyway, in that same article, there was this, there was this line, which I think is really true is the ability to listen and daydream and still complete a chore might be exactly the point. Which that is kind of the amazing thing about audiobooks is times when I would be, you know, just cooking or just putting my clothes or something. I'm I'm listening to a book, which I think is I, I don't see that as being a negative. And maybe, yeah, I do a daydream. But if I realize I daydream, there is that 15 second back button.
1: Yeah. I mean, for me, there's that sense of sometimes even when you're reading, you know, you might you might gloss a section because a th- something triggers a thought and you're thinking, and you're still moving forward in time. So that it's, it can be similar, but I am one. I found that when I was listening to it while I was cooking or doing something else, it almost, I was still paying attention and getting everything, but I wasn't, I just wasn't as deeply engaged Sure, because I was, you know, split screened.
0: Yeah. And, and ultimately there is, I'm sure a million studies on uh, multitasking that Mm -hmm. come into play there. But I just think that, you know, audiobooks uh, apparently are a $1.2 billion industry. I believe that. In 2013. Big time. Um, and, and I think that they can be done amazingly well. Um, and, and they can add something to the narrative that you wouldn't have got reading. Mm-hmm. And a perfect example for me is uh, Gone Girl by Gillian Flynn which was they had a voice for nick and a voice for amy and that alone made it an incredible listen right uh and and things could hit really hard because it's 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 first person and i think that that actually is is Something that audiobooks can do really well is is putting a really good actor or a really good reader with with a text and creating that voice. And so yeah. a first person voice is really the best way to consume an audiobook, especially if you're if you're just dipping your toe in.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. There's something you know, it's that sense of making the voice come alive where when you're reading first person, you you know, you kind of hear it in your head, but to be able to hear that person. Or, you know, somebody pretending to be that person, saying those things. That's really cool. I do dig that.
0: Um, Perhaps not unsurprisingly, original audiobooks were uh, released by the Library of Congress for Hmm. the blind. Really? That's where they started, yeah. Interesting. So I think that that's kind of cool. Yeah, I dig that. And... And I think that that is, it is kind of amazing thing is just like, like that you can close your eyes and rest Mm -hmm. and be reading. (laughs) Yeah. It's a, it's a very cool thing.
1: Yeah. That can be really nice too, especially in today's modern world when you're staring at screens and things for your whole day. It can be, you know, it's still pleasurable, but it can be wearying to like look at another thing very intently.
0: Did you listen to this book on your, um, audible app on your, I did. Okay. So they're on the audible app. I just wanted to talk about this for briefly for a second. There are these badges, like this weird, like social media. Oh
1: man. I turned that shit off.
0: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But go on. I just am sort of curious. Like, I I don't know. I, I just think it's sort of this really silly, like does everything need to be gamified
1: I mean, almost every app anymore has that stuff. It's
0: really strange. <laughs> Another line, this is from a Wall Street Journal article, which I really love, was a new breed of literary omnivores, which... Uh, was the this fa- the one
1: that was talking about how audiobooks are maybe the next big thing?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was back from article. like 2013. Yeah. But, uh, and then the fast company said, "Okay, so these narratextosaurs <laughs> <laughs> and I really like the idea of being a narratextosaur. that might be me, regardless if it's an audiobook or reading and yeah, uh, I would describe myself that way as well so this is actually before we tell you the title of the book that we listened to this week since it's a mystery since since we didn't tell you last episode, yeah um. Uh, This is the beginning of our Tournament of Books coverage.
1: Yeah, the uh, shortlist came out a couple of weeks ago, and if you're anything like us, you've been frantically trying to track down copies of all the books and get through them by March 1st. Yes. Yes. Or most of them. By yeah. myself, I know I'm going to read 15.
0: And I'm going to read 14. Uh, we're both skipping the Ferrante.
1: Yeah, it's just I don't have time to go read the first two
0: books and then this, the third book. Yeah, it seems like over like, 1,500 pages or something. It seems like a lot.
1: It's a lot. And like, if it's from everything I've heard, you have to read the other ones.
0: Yeah, and I, I, uh, someone compared Ferrante to like a female um, Karlov Nasgard. Interesting. Which makes me really interested in reading it.
1: I was going to say, that's a good hook for you.
0: Yeah, I, yeah. I'm a huge nasgard fan. Um, and so I'm very, very excited to to jump into it, but I'm not going to ruin it by jumping into the third book. Yeah. And I'm not going to read Roxane Gay's An Untamed State. Not because I don't like Roxane Gay, because I do. I think she, she was great. I loved her comments on Lena Dunham's yeah. dust up. I thought she was so Brilliant. smart. Um, but I just, uh, I don't know, uh, my online book group read it. And just by the comments on that, I can just tell it's not a book that I'm going to like. So unless the book goes really far in the tournament, I'm just going to skip that one. That's fair. So this book though is, um, Celeste Ings.
1: Everything I never told you.
0: Everything I never told you. Which is a pretty good title. I like that title. Good
1: title. Catchy title. Catchy opening lines. Mm-hmm. Um.
0: Yeah, I... This is a this is a strange book. It's it was a it was perhaps the wrong book to get you to listen to audiobooks, Drew.
1: Yes. I yes. But and that said I'm willing to give audiobooks another shot. Um, but yeah, this was this was not
0: To me, any anytime that I reach for the 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 speed up button mm-hmm. um, on on the Audible uh, app, that's a failure like I should be enjoying yes. the way that they're deploying the book. And I
1: went from from one speed to 0. 0.25 to 0. 0.5 finally by the end I was at two times.
0: Yeah. Me too. Yeah. And and I I don't think that I don't think that actually speaks to like it's bad narration or that it's a bad book. It just is the wrong marriage of these two things and I think, you know, we were talking before about how the best book, the best audiobooks to me are the ones that you can really create a voice. Mm-hmm. And she couldn't because it wasn't first person. It was these close right. thirds and she didn't do enough changes in between them to really denote like, I'm in Nath's head now. I'm in.
1: Yeah. It was only when people spoke that there was really any shift in the, vocal tone
0: right so everything i never told you is about this family
1: uh yeah it's the 1970s they're living in ohio and it's um the husband is chinese the wife is like blonde blue eyes american Mm -hmm. they have three children and the novel begins with the eldest daughter um she's dead it sort of has that like dickensy grab you opening line of like okay we've got a dead body that's where we're starting, but the whole idea is that the family doesn't know that she's dead yet and it tracks you through their first morning.
0: Right. That beginning actually set up the wrong expectation because mm-hmm. it's it's it was a very thriller beginning, yep. and that is not what this book is. It's a really quiet meditation about the ways that your family can really screw you up. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and ultimately... I think it's a pretty successful book in that regard.
1: Yeah. I mean, part of the issue is that for so long while I was listening to the book, I was still waiting for that, the promise of that thriller hook to kick in. And Mm. as I was realizing that it wasn't, it's just, you know, it's that problem that we have with so many books anymore that where it, the Expectation is set up through the back cover copy or through reviews or just critical. This is the new whatever,
0: yeah. And it's not For anyone who liked cereal, I'm just yeah.
1: <laughs> you're like, ah.
0: if you like cereal, check out this paint on my wall. <laughs>
1: what <laughs> that's good, that's a deep joke, right there.
0: <laughs> I don't appreciate it, Drew. <laughs> yeah, I don't know all of these reviews were talking about how emotionally complex it is. And it actually to me was, wasn't. And I think that that was actually part of its strength was that, that they were drawing this sort of one-to-one relationships that you usually don't of just like, there's this, there's this daughter, uh, Hannah, she's the youngest. She's seven years younger than her, um, than her brother. Who's the second, second oldest in the family. And, she's forgotten and it's pretty much like they don't pay attention to her. Mm -hmm. So she is a quiet observant Mm -hmm. girl. It's very much one-to-one, but I think that also makes sense of, of, of how people become who they are. We think that we're very complex in these things, but really like a lot of our environment really explains where we come from and how we've ended up.
1: I mean, it's very much a like nurture over nature, kind of book, you look at this, but this was something that I actually didn't like about it. How, how simple it was. It was this idea that like the mother had, um, her mother had been pushing her, her whole life to, you know, to marry well, like you're going to go to Harvard and you're going to meet a great man where she wanted to go and become a doctor. She wanted to be a scientist. She wanted to do things with her life.
0: So she pushes that on her oldest daughter because she didn't do it yeah. very. And, 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 but I think that it gave her some leeway in in what story she was telling, which was this dis- disappearance. It, it sort of it sort of gave her the ability to color in some of these lines of how a family react could react to a disappearance. But. It didn't push or something or, or, or it was the thriller that it wasn't a, like it well, there was no... promised a thriller and it right. wasn't. or Even though
1: it, there was no pulse. Yeah. It, that sense of, of urgency of.
0: It felt like ticking boxes. Mm hmm.
1: Yeah. And in that sense, you know, I didn't, I didn't enjoy the experience of the book, but at the same time, it's not a bad book. It's no. just fine. It, it does. It is just ticking these boxes and saying, Okay, here's this thing, we're gonna set up this expectation, and then we're gonna do this. We're gonna set up this and then we're gonna do this.
0: I wonder if I would have connected more to it had I I mean I'm I'm a white middle class male, yeah. and so I wonder if I would have connected to it more had I been of Chinese descent and and noticed some of the the fabric that she's playing with in that regard of the of the race relations which are a huge part of the book and are very interesting but i i didn't i didn't have the emotional connection to that and i'm curious if 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 that kept that put up a wall for me or not
1: that's interesting i i also feel like she didn't go like those the race relation issue was big in the book but every time it came up it almost felt like now i've brought it up and now let me push on or push mm. it to the side like, you know, there are these moments where James specifically, the father, the patriarch of the family, is is dealing with um, prejudice in his daily life. And it was just sort of, again, it was like it was, the box was ticked. It was like this happened and now, yeah, you know, there was never that sense of like we're really going to get into but this. But also
0: it gave some great details of like he's really into American cowboys. Like that's mm-hmm. what he teaches at Harvard is a class on cowboys. <laughs> yeah. Which is awesome.
1: Yeah, i take that class. I mean, it all just ended up feeling ordinary. Yeah. And there's something about, A, the setup. It's not an ordinary setup. Just the no. idea of, okay, eldest daughter has disappeared. They find out that she's drowned in the lake. Setting up, the, you know, the grief, all of that. It's not an ordinary circumstance. But every every time I was listening, and part of it might have been the narration. Yeah. It just felt so... I wonder
0: if I... Doo-doo-doo. Yeah, would I would I have enjoyed it more if I had just read it? Um. And or, I don't know. And uh, there were there were times when I kind of wished that the book was about different characters or or focused on more on Nathan and Hannah, the yeah. the the brother and the sister siblings. that were still alive, rather than focusing on Marilyn, who really didn't change in the whole book. I really no. I really felt like she was a really that was her real by the numbers character.
1: Yeah. Well, and you know, there's something about her character where it's just like you you peg her from moment 1. You're like, okay, you got screwed up by your parents. Now you're screwing up your kids. You are unhappy, you d- you wanted more but you settled. Where are you going to end up? And yeah, she ends up exactly where she started pretty much.
0: I got to say, I don't uh I don't love talking about this book.
1: Uh <laughs> It's I mean, it's kind of weird because it sort of lives in the middle ground. There's not a whole lot almost to talk about. It doesn't force you. It doesn't force conversation.
0: Yeah. It's
1: (laughs) like that's the first time this has happened to us. Really?
0: Yeah. When I don't like a book, Mm -hmm. I feel like the failing is in me and not in the book. Like Mm -hmm. I, I was, I was just the wrong audience. Like I, I shouldn't have picked it up when I did or, or, uh, yeah, but I think I should be I, I should allow myself to just not like a book and not find myself to be disappointed.
1: Yeah, sometimes that does happen. I've picked up books and like you read the first 10 pages and you're like, wait a minute, this is not... I know that I would like this if I was reading it at a different time. But yeah, I, I encourage you to, to tap into your dark side. <laughs> it is a cool thing, man, this idea that all of a sudden we drop what we're doing and pick up as many as 16 books, probably not because we're well read i had i had
0: four i had four of them read, so i'm i b had to pick up uh ten more. How many did you ever read
1: i think i had I did really well this year. I think I had f- six maybe that I'd already read wow yeah um or that like I already had or that were right there on my on my stack
0: right well. We're not gonna read from it because the audiobook we'll read from it. Go to the Amazon Audible page and, and check out the reading. And it could just be that we were the wrong audience. You could love it yourself. I mean, Amazon seemed to just think it was the best thing yeah. in the world. Um if you
1: do love it, uh, talk to us.
0: Yes, tell us about it. Tell yeah. us why you you know. We we have a an email address called so many damn books at gmail dot com. We also have a Twitter. And someday we will update our Tumblr. Yeah. Uh, so hello. Welcome to our podcast, Emily.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Uh, oh,
2: it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate your enthusiasm for the book.
0: Oh, yeah. This, we, we both loved it.
2: Yeah, it's amazing.
0: And it, was, uh, it really brought, we find, when we both read it, it was one of the first books that made us finally be like, okay, let's start the podcast. We got to talk about this.
2: That is so cool to hear. Thank
0: you. <laughs> yeah, um, can I ask? This has
1: been since we read the book an ongoing discussion between Christopher and I. Your sure. middle name, Sinjin or St. John?
2: Ah, uh, St. John. Oh. Yeah, I-, I think it's technically supposed to be Sinjin, but nobody told me that until I was like eleven, and it was kind of too late. You know, too <laughs> settled on pronunciation. It's hard to put. So.
0: so your parents didn't know that that was the pronunciation then.
2: You know, my mother must have, because it was her, her mother's maiden name, um, and she, she named me St. John or St. John because she wanted to keep it in the family. But it's one of those names where I think in North America the correct pronunciation would come across as kind of pretentious, so it's probably <laughs> why we thought it was St. John for so long. <laughs> yeah,
0: I think the only reason—did you know it because of Mad Men, Drew? Uh, no,
1: because my, I remember reading, I think it was like Jane Eyre, there's a character, and, and being in like a high school English class, and being like, why is this guy's name St. John? And my teacher was <laughs> right. like, oh, it's St. John, and I was like, that's weird. <laughs>
2: it's, yeah, it's such uh, it's such strange pronunciation, it just has no bearing whatsoever at the letters you're actually there. <laughs> I can never really get behind it, yeah.
0: Uh, but that's a long lead into this being. Um, we're we're here with em, Emily St. John Mandel, uh, writer of many books, but most recently uh, Station Eleven. And um, Station Eleven is uh, it seems to have a, a level of popularity. Would you say, Emily?
2: Yeah, it's just been extraordinary. Um, my first three books were published by a very small press, which which translated to less than phenomenal sales, just because you know, it's the nature of the way the book world is in this country. Um, with the fourth book, I knew I wanted to go with a bigger publisher you know, in the hopes of finding new readers. But it's really been beyond my wildest expectations for the book. It's just been an incredible year.
0: How have you been accounting for that success of the book? I mean, is... Do you feel like you've written it? I mean, it seems like a com- it seems like a departure from your last three, which uh, I'm going to admit that I haven't read yet, but I definitely am going to. Oh, um, well,
2: thank you. Um, yeah, it is a departure. My f- there are definitely some similarities. I think it's, uh, it's fair to say that some of the themes are similar. Um, I tend to write about groups of people. Music seems to come in a lot. Um, themes of memory and amnesia and... The um, importance of art in our lives, but the first three books were generally categorized as literary noir, or sometimes even as straight-up crime fiction. So it is a departure. Uh, it is very different from the first three books in a lot of ways. And uh, the success of it, you know, it's partly... There is absolutely an element of chance to these things. Um, you know, I've been, been selected as a finalist for National Book Award. It's just an incredible thing that completely changes your career. And it's not denigrating the book in any way to say that a a different set of judges would have picked a completely different set of books. So, you know, there's definitely an element of luck in something like that. Um, I think there's a real appetite for books that could be called literary fiction, which is one of those terms that's obviously impossible to define, but that also have uh, genre elements. Or you could say books that are literary fiction but also plot-driven. I think there's some appetite for that. Um,
0: I heard yeah, you, those are
2: my only series.
0: I heard you, or I read you say once, you you said that this, The Secret History is like the perfect uh, version of that. Um,
2: yeah, yeah, I think it is. I'm actually rereading it this week cause I'm giving a talk on it in a month or two.
0: Oh, um, oh cool. Oh, where, yeah, are that t- kind of, where are you giving that Where are you giving that
2: talk? Great question. Um, St. Joseph's College, uh, an MFA program called The Writer's Foundry in Brooklyn. Oh,
0: awesome.
2: Um, Yeah, it's kind of a cool format. They ask you to talk about somebody else's book, which I appreciate. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 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 but yeah, um, I see that as sort of the perfect book in terms of what I try to do as a writer, what I'm trying to accomplish, which is to write something that's as literary as anything out there, but that is very plot-driven and just has a really strong narrative drive.
1: You mentioned um, the art and the way that art sort of goes through all of your books. I actually happen to work at the public theater over in Manhattan. Um, oh, do you? That's a cool place to work. So as I was reading the beginning, of it, I was like, wow, this production sounds kind of interesting. And then I saw your, in the acknowledgements, you mentioned that it was the Kevin Klein Lear from, I don't know, almost eight or nine oh, years seven ago or now. something?
2: There. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
1: um, um, I, just yeah wondered,
2: I, I love that production.
1: I'm curious about how you feel about art and sort of what it means for humanity. Like the the way that you choose, you chose two art forms that are not the most popular art forms right now, and sort of Mm -hmm. those are the ones that end up surviving.
2: Right, and they're not the most popular art forms, but they're art forms that are completely not at all dependent on technology, which, which, you know, in a post-apocalyptic scenario is important. Yeah, what I feel about art, it's it's such a big question, but I guess if I were to boil it down, especially in the context of this book, I feel like art is one of those things that can represent civilization for us, um, that can remind us of what civilization civilization is, Um, and it seems to be something that we sort of incline naturally toward as a species. Um, you know, the, the example I find myself giving um, sometimes is the fashion show in Paris immediately following the Second World War. would have been, I guess, yeah, 1945, 1946. So the city is just in horrendous shape. There are horrible shortages. Uh, life's extremely difficult. Um, and they put on a fashion show. And what I've read over the years is how important that was. It was this moment of sort of uh, stating both themselves into the world, like, look, we're more than just survival. This is a sort of a moment of grace. It's something that's important to us. And, you know, in a more general way, um, we, uh, as a species, we play musical instruments in refugee camps. We put play on plays in war zones. So I think that art is something that we're very naturally drawn to. And I think we're drawn to it because it reminds us that there's more than just getting through the day, you know, finding food and shelter and water.
1: Oh, yeah. that speaks so deeply to everything that I love and believe in.
0: <laughs> uh, to both of us, yeah. <laughs> um, in in your imagination of the end of the world, um, did did something trigger you thinking this way, or or did you, um, or and has it been hard to stop after you finished writing the book?
2: It is hard to stop after finished writing the book. Um, as I was writing the book, and and even still now, you know, I'll find myself in any given scenario, like, say, the parking lot of the Home Depot in Brooklyn by the Gowanus Canal. And I'll be thinking, what would this be like? with? That, it
0: does does look like a post-apocalyptic street. world already.
2: It kind of does, right? That's why I think about it when I'm down there. Um, yeah, or, you know, just walking down the street. You think, what would this street be like with weeds and trees growing through the pavement and no carts and maybe a deer or two? Um, and, yeah, it's uh, it's sort of an unsettling thought exercise. It has stayed with me, <laughs> I say, as I have it. Um, and in terms of what triggered it, for me, I guess part of it is just that I really like post-apocalyptic fiction. Um, you know, I'd read a couple of books that were post-apocalyptic that I really enjoyed and thought it would be an interesting thing to try. And it was also a way of writing about the modern world, which is obviously kind of a roundabout way of doing it. But, you know, you think of a Requiem, for example, um, you know, one way to, to express something or to write about something is to talk about its absence. So for me, writing a book that was set in this post-apocalyptic world was sort of a way to celebrate the world we have now. The, uh, the cell phones and running water and 911 and electricity, all those other fun things. But I think we just completely take for granted a lot of the time.
0: Recently, like, uh, my water was turned off because of fixing pipes. And just six hours of that was, well... Yeah. It was surprising how much I turn on water.
2: Huh. <laughs> I know right the things you don't notice till they're gone. <laughs> yeah or when you're in a no cell phone zone um, or a dead zone I guess it's like yeah it's kind of unsettling it's strange.
1: The book came out right around the time that everything was getting a little scary with the Ebola crisis and it just I remember reading it and feeling like, whoa, this all of a sudden feels especially timely that idea of like what would happen <laughs> right. if all of a sudden, did you ever have a sense while you were writing it or now, since it's happened, that you just sort of look at the world and are like, oh my gosh, Like, did I imagine this thing that's going to happen?
2: <laughs> um, to tell you the truth, you know, this is a really kind of fatalistic thing to admit, but <laughs> I did a lot of research into, um, into the history of pandemics um, and you know, some of the mechanisms of mass contagion. And what you're left with, if you do even just some cursory research into that, is that there was always going to be another Ebola and another flu epidemic and another measles epidemic. You know, it's just um, it's just something that's happened to us over and over and over again as a species. And it's, it's unsettling but also hopeful to think about. You know, the, the unsettling part is pretty obvious, which is that you realize that um, if you write a novel in which most of civilization is wiped out by a plague, what you're really writing is just kind of a... Um, an exaggeration of something that's actually happened over and over and over again. You know, you think of smallpox in North America, for example, or the Black Death in Europe. So, you know, that's that's obviously pretty dark and awful to think about. On the other hand, we are still here as a species, so there's some hope in that. <laughs> so, yeah, there's uh, it, I guess researching this stuff can kind of lend a sense of inevit- inevitability to, to the Ebola and flu outbreaks.
1: Very cool. You mentioned, too, the idea of... of hope at the same time. The book feels very hopeful in a way that a lot of post-apocalyptic stories don't. Um, Did you feel like you were trying to sort of uh, change the tone a little bit and just do something that was hopeful in the face of terrible catastrophe?
2: It was, yeah, and I'm glad that came through for you. Um, Yeah, there are a couple of factors at play there. One of them was just that as much as I enjoy some of the sort of more horrific post-apocalyptic novels, like um, Cromack McCarthy's The Road, for example, I felt like that ground had been really well covered. You know, we've kind of seen those scenes of chaos and horror and absolute mayhem, which I think is probably accurate to what would follow immediately after a complete societal breakdown. But I think that that state of mayhem wouldn't last forever everywhere on Earth. I think that 15 or 20 years out, we'd probably be figuring out how to live a little more peacefully in the world, just because mayhem isn't such a sustainable way of life over the long haul. So for me, the key there is the timing. You know, it's not that I think there wouldn't be a horrific period. It's that for me, it was more interesting to write about the period after that. Um, Yeah, and... uh, I did want to write something a little bit hopeful, which sounds strange to say in the context of a post-apocalyptic novel, you know, because it's not like I actually want it to happen. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, to me it was uh, it was more interesting to think about or to write about a time when, when there maybe would be some hope, you know, when um, there would be probably not the world, probably the world that was lost wouldn't be restored, but maybe a new world would start to would start to appear so yeah it was that, and also i just didn't really want to write a horror novel it's not really my thing <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: um actually uh, that leads well into my question which is the um the structure of the book is really interesting and i was kind of curious if, uh, about how that developed in, in the after the fall and before the fall and um and the way that right. that came out
2: right. yeah those overlapping time uh, timelines that's a structure that I've been playing with since my first novel, Last Night in Montreal. This idea of jumping back and forth in time and between multiple characters. I've just found it to be a really interesting way to tell a story. You know, it lets you return to the same moments in the plot over and over again, some different perspectives, which, which for me is really interesting because I'm interested in, um, in memory, you know, specifically the way in which three different people can experience the same event and remember them completely differently, remember the event completely differently. So there's that. And then it's also, it's kind of a fun way to put together a book. You know, there's always this sort of horrible element to putting together a book. <laughs> it is <laughs> such a marathon writing a novel. <laughs> but I really enjoy that uh, that way of structuring a book, that feeling of putting together this sort of interesting puzzle over you know, the years of revision. Um, yeah, so it's a ha- habit that I've fallen into. I've, I think it might be interesting to write a completely linear story at some point. I really, I really respect novels so that can do that. But, but yeah, I've been enjoying this fractured structure.
0: Well, yeah, well, it definitely added a new sort of um, depth to the to to the post apocalyptic genre to have the what what they were like before the fall, a long long time before the fall.
2: Um that's good. Yeah, it's uh it's interesting. You now, it gets marketed as a post apocalyptic book, which is obviously accurate. But I mean about half of it takes place in the present day. So yeah, I wanted to I wanted to give those present day sections almost equal weight. Um and yeah, it was uh it was fun to structure in that way. I enjoyed it. Do
0: you do you read while you write?
2: Yeah, I pretty much always work in a novel. So yeah, you know, I have friends who don't write books while they're writing books, but I feel like um, I would never read if I, <laughs>
0: that, <so>. yeah. <laughs> um, and I guess that me that leads to the question of just, uh, uh what do you, what have you read recently that you really loved? Cause that's, that is kind of the, the MO of our podcast.
2: Uh, recommendations. Yeah. I've read, I actually have my notebook here where I've been listing books that I read. Yeah. So I'm reading the secret history right now. Um, and the last book I read that I really loved was Tiger Man by Nick Harkaway. Oh, I love book. that and, uh, book. Have you? Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> He's so good. So amazing. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. All of his work, I think, is amazing. And you know, each new book is just chilling. And what will we do next? And yeah, I thought Tiger Man was fantastic. Um, and then I also just read. Let me pull out my little notebook here. Um, oh, a really great short story collection. Uh Man Z Nature by Diane Cook. It was hilarious and completely weird and I totally great So
0: Yeah. Cool. Yeah, thanks. Those uh, actually Drew on a previous podcast recommended Tiger Man already, I think, once. So we're gonna have to definitely read I think you were just talking about it that you it would probably be in the T. O. B.
1: Oh yeah. I wish it had been. God, I love what
2: Nick does. Um, it's so great. Yeah.
0: You do, drop a lot of like comic book references and some nerdy, geeky world of like the, the Star Trek and Star Trek
1: Voyager. I mean, I remember watching that show and my friends who were Star Trek fans being like, "Ooh, that one!"
0: <laughs> that one's a little—that's a deeper one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I was just curious: that was is a that good show. is that a character yeah, thing or is that you?
2: <laughs> that's a good question. I am. Um, I guess. Uh, I mean, for me, just my the Star Trek. Um, the Star Trek reference in the book, that line, survival is insufficient. Mm-hmm. For me, it was all about that reference, not Star Trek itself. Although, you know, Star Trek was cool. I watched a lot of Star Trek when I was a teenager. But, yeah, that, that one line, um, survival is sufficient," it just seemed to me to be such a concise and elegant expression of, what's sort of the book's entire thesis statement? You know, that inclination toward art after disaster, that idea that survival isn't enough. Um, yeah, so it was that. And... The comic books, I haven't read a ton of comic books, but I think it's a really cool form. I've been getting more into graphic novels recently, and um, I've been reading graphic memoirs, which I think are really interesting. Alison Bechdel's work, and uh, Roz Chas' book. Um, Yeah, so I think it's a really cool form.
1: Is it something you feel like you'd ever experiment with? I mean, I know that as I was reading the novel, I kept thinking about, wow, I'd love to read all of, of Dr. Eleven and see what this is. Yeah.
2: Uh, I guess you should say that. Yeah, I've actually been talking with Vintage who's um, putting out the paperback of Station Eleven about the possibility of doing a, a Doctor Eleven comic book to go with it. I yeah. think it would be so cool. Uh, yeah, so, you know, in theory, I'm not really supposed to be working on it because they were like, you know, don't spend too much time on this until we find an illustrator and get it all locked down. But I keep going back to my comic book script and putting it together. I think, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting form. They're uh, they're written like screenplays almost. Um It's really fun, kind of imagining what each panel would be and what the storyline looks like, and yeah, I would like to do comics at some point. Is the short answer to that rambling question?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we are about to come into March. You know, February leads to March as um, time turns. As it does. Yeah, and uh, are we are both really obsessed with the tournament of books in which Station Eleven is a contender. And I was just curious oh, if you're um, if you're following that. Or do you know? Do you, did you know you were involved in it?
2: <laughs> yeah, I knew I was a contender. I didn't know it started. did it start in March or uh, February?
0: It starts in March. It's it's the same time okay. as March Madness. So.
2: Oh, excellent. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of a cool thing. I, I love it. I love concept like the bracket system for books. Um, yeah, I, I followed it every year. I've never been in it before.
0: Um, and so. So then do you, do you have an idea of your chances? Like who you, who do you think you could go up against? I mean, you know.
2: Right. Yeah. It's, um, I seem to recall in the past, they'll often put up, put books against each other that are kind of similar, at least in the opening rounds. So Mm -hmm. I assume I'll be knocked out by David Mitchell, like in round one or two, but it'll still be cool. well. (laughs) I don't, I
1: don't know. I'm gonna. I mean, Christopher. I'm not gonna speak for you. I'm putting my money. I think on your book.
0: Yeah, actually, I we really.
2: That's so nice. Thank yeah, you. I
0: think it's it, your book. Um, one thing that the tournament does love is ambition, and your book is as ambitious, but it's still uh, in that very nice, nearly 400 page literary length. While while David Mitchell's book is a little gets a little long.
2: It's very long. Yeah, I loved it though. It's such a great book.
0: Yeah, I enjoyed reading it yeah. too.
1: But is there anything that somebody in all the press you've done, so is there like something that people haven't asked you that you are just begging somebody to ask and they never do?
2: <laughs> it's funny. I get this question all the time and I always <laughs> freeze up. <laughs> yeah, I need to come up with something for that question. Like some really fabulous thing. Um, yeah, I guess the short answer is no. There's a... There's never a question at the end of the interview, um, or very rarely a question at the end of the interview that I can think of that hasn't been covered.
0: Um, I actually I do, have your... that, so. <laughs> I do have an, okay. a, another question, which is um, sure. a few people have talked about this being the beginning of a series. And, and and I was curious if you've ever thought about writing a sequel to any of your books or this one. And, uh, and if you were thinking about sequel possibilities while you were writing this.
2: No, I really wasn't. I, um, I sort of felt like I'd said everything I wanted to say about the end of the world. So I have no immediate plans for Station 12. But, um, you know, I do think about some of the characters that were in my previous books, you know, both this one and some characters in the first three novels. And I do think that I'll eventually bring, you know, at least one or two of them back. It's, um, you know, you sort of get attached, and they seem like interesting people. And then you think about different narrative possibilities from different points in their lives before or after the novel that you put them in. So, yeah, so probably some of the characters in Station Eleven will recur at some point, but I think those characters will recur in very different stories than
0: the book. Yeah, I look forward to, to meeting them again.
1: Yeah. Oh, speaking of your, your <laughs> no. other stories, I guess this is a good mm-hmm. sort of wrap up sort of question. For somebody who's come to your work through Station 11 mm. What, which of your three previous novels would you recommend they go to next, he says as he pulls up Amazon right now? <laughs> right. Um,
2: I, I sort of... That's a good question. I, um, I find I tend to like my novels sort of in reverse chronological order. Like, I think that Station Eleven is better than The Lola Quartet, which was better than The Singers Gun, which was better than Last Man in Montreal. Um, if an interested reader were to wait until September, uh, those books are being reissued in paperback by vintage and I made a few small changes to them, which I think improved them a little bit. So yeah, so new editions are coming out, um, sometime in the fall and yeah, that could be, it could be worth waiting for if you're inclined to read them. Very cool.
0: Yeah. Very awesome. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for coming on so many damn books. We really appreciate your time.
2: Yeah, and oh, thanks for pleasure. writing such an yeah. awesome book.
0: Yeah, and uh, <laughs> well, and good luck in the you. tournament. Uh,
2: thanks so much.
1: Yeah, we'll, we'll be cheering for you.
0: Yeah, definitely.
2: <laughs> I appreciate that. Thanks for interviewing
1: me. Woo! I'm going to, uh, in terms of recommendations, um, we've been talking a lot about the tournament and picking up these books. It can be nice to all of a sudden take a break. Right. If you have a recommendation out there for tournament of books readers, like take a break, read something else. Right. What would
0: that be? Well, I'm actually gonna recommend a really good audiobook that was actually a Tournament of Books contender the year it came out, which is Beautiful Ruins by Jess Walter. Ooh. Yeah. It's an incredible audiobook and it's a great book. Uh, yeah, I like that before. So lot. if you read it or you listen to it, it's just excellent. It's about uh, the the filming of the the you know storied box office bomb Cleopatra, sort of. But it's more about this a uh, uh, hotel on the coast of Italy, mm-hmm. uh, where one of the stars, the would be stars of Cleopatra, is sent away because of her being sick probably. And, uh, it's about the, the, the caretaker of the hotel who sort of falls for her. And it's about the Hollywood system and all sorts of fun things. And it's just, you would never, I don't know. I, I you'd never expect this book from Jess Walter to tell you the truth. Yeah. It's just a really, it's really fun. Nice. What about you?
1: Um, mine is one of those sort of frothy things um the first book
0: in jim butcher's uh the dresden files series oh. and um i've been meaning to get into that it's just sort of um it's daunting cuz there's like 6000 of them now how many are there i think i just read the 15th maybe yeah
1: and he's i think he's talking about he has plans for maybe another like six or seven or something i mean wow. it, there's a lot uh this one stormfront it's You know, it's just, it's fun. It's light. You can sit down and read it. You don't have to put that much thought into it. Harry Dresden, the main character, is a uh, wizard for hire in Chicago. He's the only registered wizard in the phone book. He's got, like, a little (laughs) PI office. You know, it's that sort of, like, goofy
0: thing. Um, And they're tiny paperbacks, right? You can fit this in your back pocket and... and head to the park if you you know and the covers
1: the covers look pulpy it's like the sort of semi photoshopped like here's a serious looking dude in a duster with a wizard staff and (laughs) stuff flowing around behind him yeah um but the the books are better than their covers good um yeah it's fun to just you know vacation for a little while
0: sure that sounds good
1: um all right so i guess that's it for us yeah this time around
0: thanks so much for listening And and what? What I don't know. Uh, Next time.
1: Yeah, next time we'll be doing um, another Tournament of Books contender, David Mitchell's *The Bone Clocks*.
0: Yes. Uh, So bony. So time. So clocky. Yeah. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Well. Please stick with us. On that. On (laughs) that note. Please do. We'll
1: try to do better. We're we're trying. All right. Goodbye.
0: My mom actually won't say the name of our podcast. Really? Yeah, she will say so many dang or so many darn books.
1: Oh.